0: Okay, well, uh, good evening to all of you. Um, welcome to this book launch to this webinar to this seminar. Uh, my name is Gad Human. I'm one of the organizers uh, of the seminar along with Kate Quinn and Steve Cushion. And it's indeed a great personal pleasure to welcome Ada Ferrer uh, to our, our seminar this evening or for her this afternoon. Ada is the Julius Silver Professor uh, of History and Latin American Caribbean Studies at NYU, uh, New York University. She has won numerous prizes for her work, including the very prestigious Frederick Douglass Book Prize for her book, Freedom's Mirror, Cuba and Haiti in the Age of Revolution. And this evening, we're very pleased to launch her new book, Cuba and American History. I might remind you all of our procedures. Uh, Ada will give her presentation and then we will open the floor for questions. So I hope you will be saving up your questions during her talk. And of course, uh, I'm sure you're by now all familiar with the fact that you can put your questions in the chat or raise your hand under the button labeled reactions. So Ada, over to you.
1: Yeah, well, uh, thanks, Gad. And Kate for for hosting me. Sorry, I'm just. Um, uh, and thanks all to being here. This I know, I mean at least in the U.S. This is a very very busy time of the semester. Um, I assume it is for you as well. So thanks for for taking the time to do this. So I'm here today to just talk informally about my my new book, which as Gad said is called Cuba and American History. And it's a very different kind of book than i've done before in that it's um it's a trade book it's not an academic monograph it it, it's not especially aimed at making a historiographical uh contribution Um, at the same time it's not a textbook and um Yeah, and while it draws and builds on and and, and uses the rich and pathbreaking work of many of my colleagues, some of you here uh, in this uh, virtual room, uh, the emphasis is really on um, on narrative and on accessibility and making the history of Cuba uh, available and accessible to a a wide audience. And so, I just want to talk a little bit about what um, what the book is, and a little bit about how I went about writing it, and what I tried to um, accomplish with it. And I'll and I'll draw on some specific examples from the from the book, paraphrasing, not, not reading or anything. Okay. So basically, you know, at a basic at its most basic level, uh, the book is uh, his, is a history of Cuba, uh, a character an episode-driven history of Cuba narrated over uh, more than 500 years. And I think of it as a book or a history that's, that's reconceived and written for, for this moment, which I see as a moment in which history itself is up for grabs. And I think it's been up for grabs for, uh, for, for a little bit, but perhaps especially now, and several things have contributed to that. One, the passing uh, of Fidel Castro uh, from this world, the passing of Raul Castro from power, um, with both of which I think invite, um, raise urgent questions and invite um, his, you know, new historical analysis about the meanings and the legacies of the Cuban revolution. Then in terms of the US and Cuba, obviously Barack Obama's opening, then the closing by, by Trump, and then the election of, of Biden, which so far has not made uh, much of a difference uh, in terms of US-Cuba policy, you know th- that does the same thing. Finally, in Cuba itself, the protests that we saw, that we've seen, um, you know, going back um, to November of last year, and especially through the summer uh, of this year, also raise um, questions, you know, about about the present, about the future, but also about how we reckon with the history of, of the Cuban uh, revolution. So, what I want to talk today is a little bit of how I try to write for what I see as this as this moment of reckoning. So. Uh, let me begin by saying, obviously, I mean, I, I don't know where you're where you're logging in from, but the event is hosted by UCL and you know in London. But the 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 book you know written in English, published in the United States, uh, I see its primary audience uh, as consi- as consisting of of mostly, um, not mostly, but 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 in a majority way of of Americans with very little knowledge of the island's history and with all kinds of and with whatever they know overdetermined by by myth and caricature so i wanted to write the book to challenge america or to challenge americans rather to see cuba beyond those myths uh beyond fidel uh and beyond fidel castro and and going back over a much longer period of time i think For me, it was really important that though the book is primarily conceived of as a history of Cuba, that I wanted it also to function as a kind of selective and necessarily incomplete history of the U.S., right, that the U.S. has played such a large role in Cuban history that to study Cuban history, I think, is also to see the U.S. from the outside in, to, to understand US history from Cuban ground and Cuban waters, right? So I say um, that I sometimes imagined the book as a kind of shadow history uh, of the US, one that in the first instance prompted American readers to think anew about Cuba, but in the second also invites readers to think anew and also maybe askew uh, about about the US itself. Uh so that so so that Part of the book was also very important to me, right? Giving American readers uh, a view of their own country through the eyes of another. Now, how do I do that? How do I, uh, how do I actually, you know, uh, accomplish or try to accomplish that goal in in the organization of the book and the writing? And part of what I do throughout is to go back and forth a lot between. Uh, the two countries, though, of course, Cuba gets uh, exponentially more attention than the U.S., right, but I, I, I did this thing where some chapters begin in Cuba, others begin in the U.S., and many of the chapters include to one, ex, you know, include, uh, often include both, uh, both places. And the purpose of that back and forth was not to compare, it's not at all a comparative history, but what I wanted to do is to tell interconnected overlapping stories uh, to allow readers to glimpse how different history can seem, depending on where they're standing. Right, so history looks different depending and, and, and as a, as many of us as historians will know this history looks very different depending on our on our vantage point. And often i play in the book with readers perspectives and expectations right from the start of each chapter And so my point is, so so i didn't you know many chapters start with a story though it's not a random you know it's not a random anecdote that i begin with uh often it's the central narrative but but written uh, in a narrative way that maybe tries to surprise the reader but my point was not just to surprise the reader for surprise sake but rather to draw their attention to things that don't easily fit into categories right to things that might often be at the edge of the frame so many not all it didn't always work but uh many of the chapter openings uh try to encompass things that are both that will be both familiar and unfamiliar to the reader and i do that i think to create or i wanted to create a space of welcome for readers in the chapters but also you know a space Perhaps of slight discomfort uh, that might lead them, you know, where they where they see from the start that you know something will be a little uh, disturbed, uh, perhaps by by their reading. And so I'm going to give you some examples of how I did that for some of the specific content in the book. Okay, and then and then I'll wrap up. So I'm going to talk about a few of the uh, of the chapters. And the first one that I want to talk a little bit about is Chapter One itself, uh, which begins. So then it goes back in time, but it begins. Uh, with the arrival of Columbus um, in the New World in 1492. And of course, that's a history that's very, very familiar. It's familiar not just to, to, to people who know Cuban history, but to American readers uh, in general, right? It's a it's a staple of, of what uh, people call here of, you know, elementary school social studies, right? That Columbus's landing begins almost uh, every general um, history of the U.S. from... The very first uh, volume of George Bancroft's History of the United States, which was published in 1834, to Howard Zinn's A People's History of the US, published in 1980, and to Jill Lepore's much more recent book, uh, These Truths. So I begin the chapter with that very familiar story, but I right away make uh, a simple observation, and that is that Columbus. Never, ever set foot on any any territory that became part of the United States. And that simple observation then raises a question. Why is it that a history that did not occur in the U.S. or in any of the territories that eventually became the U.S. came to serve as the obligatory origin point of U.S. history? And what I discuss is that actually the conception of U.S. history as originating in 1492 actually emerged in the 19th century, and it emerged precisely at the moment when American statesmen began to imagine the a young United States expanding into places like Cuba and the Caribbean. So what I What I show is, or what I suggest, I don't spend that much time on it, right? What I suggest is that early U.S. historians seized an essentially foreign history and made it theirs. Many of them fully expecting that the lands on which that history unfolded would soon be theirs too. So today, Americans, you know, they're completely familiar with the old that old history of Columbus's arrival but most Americans are generally unaware of the later history of empire that led that Columbus story to being narrated as their own. So here, that's an example, and that's, you know, again, what I try to do throughout of a chapter opening that begins with something very familiar, but in a way that calls unexpected attention to Americans' understanding of, of their own history, okay? So now I want to jump a a few centuries forward and and talk briefly about one of the 19th century chapters that deals with the question of slavery. There are several chapters, most of the 19th century chapters in one way or another deal with the question of of slavery. But there's one, um, chapter nine, uh, which begins uh, in the U.S. uh, with the inauguration of a U.S vice president, I'm sorry, of a U.S. president in uh, March of 1953, it's the inauguration of, of Franklin uh, Pierce. So I begin that chapter in Washington, D.C. Uh, with, with the, you know, the, the story of that inauguration, the snow falling, the fact that Franklin Pierce is incredibly depressed because the sun died, all, you know, all this stuff, uh, that there's protesters, that there's, you know, looming sectional conflict. There's also a missing uh, vice president Uh, William Rufus King. And uh, William Rufus King, um, at the moment of the inauguration, is actually in Cuba on a Cuban sugar plantation. And he is the only um, American vice president uh, to have ever taken his oath of office as US vice president on foreign ground. So um, he was dying of tuberculosis, um, taking something that doctors at the time called the sugar cure, where people were supposed to go to an active sugar mill and, and, and breathe in all the fumes as enslaved people were uh, processing and, and, and carting and hauling. and. Um, uh, sugar and uh, breathing all that, re- breathing all those fumes and sitting in the heat was supposed to cure his case of tuberculosis. It obviously didn't. But um, but that's you know when I read that story that um, which comes up in passing in in, in a lot of work, but I've never really focused on it before. But I chose to start um, that chapter on slavery with that American inauguration with the vice president sitting on a Cuban sugar plantation. Because you know, n- not as a way to to not focus on 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 the enslaved in Cuba or uh, um, you know who, who appear in other parts of the chapter and other chapters, obviously, but as a way to call attention to the way that the U.S. itself was so deeply implicated in the day-to-day functioning of Cuban slavery and the ways in which Cuban slavery was deeply uh, connected to American attempts at expansion. Uh, into, um, into Cuba, right? So that's um, another example, you know, I, I just wanted to, that's one of my favorite chapters and I just wanted to give it as an example of, of, of the way I kind of move back and forth and um, yeah, and just tell people or tell, uh, you know, present to American readers, not just things they, they're not gonna know about Cuba, but things they're not gonna know about, about the US um, as well. Okay, now I want to jump to a very different um, section of the book, and as you might imagine, that that section is um, the section on the on the Cuban on the Cuban Revolution, and um, in some ways I felt I feel like every challenge related to the book is is greater for the period of the Cuban Revolution because uh, it's the it's the part of the history that people are are most familiar with on some level they also may have the most uh, misconceptions about they also may have the the strongest opinions about so I feel like the challenge of 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 writing and getting people to kind of um maybe suspend judgment or just you know not immediately fall back on what they think they know I felt the the burden of uh you know, of that most keenly uh, in the, in the section of the, of the book on the revolution, which is, which is, you know, more than a third, close to, more than a third of the book. Um, Okay. And so I want to um, talk a little bit about, um, a couple of the chapters and and the way I do that, and I'm just bringing up these chapters just you know in sometimes when I've done when I've presented the book at, at things like book fairs, I'll do um, you know I do a, a short reading from some of these chapters, but I'm, I don't I don't want to do that uh, with this format. But you know, feel free to ask me more about these chapters or about obviously about any of any other potential section of the book that you, that you might want to talk about. But um, there's two chapters in particular on the revolution that I want to talk about here, and that is uh, the the two chapters that that um, again that that readers most familiar with overarching histories of the Cold War would be most familiar with, and that is of course that ch- you know uh, I have a chapter on on the Bay of Pigs and a chapter on on the Cuban on the Cuban Missile Crisis, and. Um, i'm going to talk about them i think out of out of order uh and talk about the missile crisis um the missile crisis chapter first now that you know that's a subject again that many readers are familiar with there's there's mainstream movies about it there's you know been dozens and dozens of books uh you know trade books commercial books that 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 people um are you know might be familiar with so and often the way that is narrated is as the you know the history of the 13 days, the history of a history that begins when um, Kennedy becomes aware of, of the so- of Soviet missiles in Cuba, right? And then the histories narrate the the, the um the tension and the, the 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 almost come and the coming to the precipice of of nuclear war uh and then the resolution. And it's a story that's Primarily focused on Kennedy, on Khrushchev, and sometimes also on, on Fidel Castro. So the way I I begin um, that chapter is um, is different. So I start, uh, you know, I, I started in Cuba, and I started in a small rural town called Santa Cruz de los Pinos, and um, it's actually less than uh, two miles from where where my mother grew up, which is something I just figured out when I was working on all this. But in 1962, people there still got around mostly on horseback, horse-drawn carriage. There were, you know, occasional station wagons that picked up riders for modest fare. But in September of 1962, uh, and this is how, you know, I opened the chapter, the town suddenly began having traffic jams in the middle of the night. There were these massive trucks that, that, that came in, and they were so big that they shook the ground and they tried try to make it around the corners in the small town and they, the, the, the truck's turns were too wide. Uh, a fi- you know, police had to, um, and local military had to um, take down the columns on a building, on the spot. They had to demolish uh, a, a, a restaurant that, that stood in the way. Uh, people came to their windows to figure out what was happening and Cuban soldiers motioned for the residents to step inside and away from their windows and as you know and and the way I start is with that episode and I have Cuban people doing what you know what I learned in my research that they were doing which is that they you know if you those of you who know Cuban architect or Caribbean architecture will know that many windows are those wooden louvered windows and there's accounts of of people opening those those slats to try to look out and figure out, you know, what in the world was going on. And what they saw was these, you know, these big trucks that had um, these long, um, long beds in the back, you know, these long uh, platforms. And on those platforms, uh, there were these things covered in tarps uh, that looked like large palm trees. So, of course, they weren't large palm trees. They were these, you know, uh, Soviet R-12 Missiles, uh, each with a range of about 1,200 um, miles, easily able to uh, strike the U.S. um, eastern seaboard, and uh, each potentially, you know, capable of carrying a nuclear warhead, uh, 70 times more powerful than, than what the U.S. had detonated over Hiroshima. So, So that's how I begin that chapter. And of course, later I go on to narrate the traditional 13-day crisis, but I do so within a frame that also includes Cuban men and women. So people living near the bases, striking up friendships with, and courtships even with those Soviet soldiers, trading with them um, and so on, and trying to kind of just understand what was happening uh, to to their world Um, at that moment, okay? By the end of that chapter, uh, with nuclear war averted, as we all know, I briefly discussed the impact of the well-known episode of the, you know, of the missile crisis for both uh, the U.S. and the the Soviet Union. But I, you know, I suggest that for Cuba itself, having survived uh, that that crisis, the the long-term impact uh, was not particularly great. And I explain why, and then I end the chapter uh, with pigs because uh, when the Cuban, when the Soviets left, Cubans uh, did what what, what Cubans um, um, have done so well, which is they, um, you know, they they recycle. So they they snuck into the Cuban uh, the Soviet missile hangars. And gathered what material they could that had been left behind and then they used some of those materials in their own um, you know in their own property and they used it to as material in um, to make pig, pig pens and animal pens you know for other uh, for other livestock and, and such. So that's uh, again you know the, the idea is that you take this large this history with a big age of the Cold War. But but focus it or not focus it entirely, but you make you make room for ordinary Cubans who live that um, history day to day. Okay, And then speaking of pigs, the last chapter I want to discuss here is my chapter on the Bay of Pigs. Um, It was the, you know. Anyway, yeah. Uh, as, as, As many of you may know, the most common accounts of the history of the Bay of Pigs in Cuba begins with the landing of uh, the U.S.-orchestrated invasion of anti-Castro exiles, okay, uh, in the in the swamps of the of the Bay of Pigs. So my Bay of Pigs chapter uh, begins in that swamp as well, but I begin it differently. So I begin by discussing um, the, the the unusual landscape. And it's actually a remarkably stable and unchanging uh, landscape um, for eons. So there are, um, there are species that are considered so unchanging over so long that scientists sometimes refer to them as living fossils because they've changed so little. Uh, one, of those, uh, one of those species, those old species in the area is called the queen triggerfish. Which Cubans call cochinos, which is how um, the Bay of Pigs got its name. Um, by de the Cochinos or, or Bay of Pigs, and so I discuss, you know, I discuss the the, the longevity of some of those um, species and so on. And then I, I bring in, and this is all brief, condensed, right? But I bring in uh, people, human human actors as as latecomers. Uh, so I, I refer to uh, the indigenous people who lived in the area who used to bury their dead, feet always facing to the east under layers of soil and snail shells. I talk about captive Africans who were, during the illegal slave trade, uh, were landed on those um, unwelcoming, uh, dangerous coasts and had to navigate the coral reefs uh, in in bare feet. I talk about the coal workers who, uh, for generations, have made a living uh, in the only in the only industry in the area which was which was coal they would they would harvest the 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 trees from under the swamp uh you know excavate them with the weight of their own bodies among other things and then create these pits and burn them to create charcoal and that was the main industry in the region uh before you know, the 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 invasion happened and then I go to the period of the early revolution and some of the projects that the revolutionary government had undertaken there and the fact that which I didn't know until I started doing this research I learned a lot doing the research even though I thought I already knew a lot but uh, one of the things I found is that Fidel Castro spent his first Christmas in power you know, in the area, having Christmas Eve dinner with, uh, with resident charcoal workers. He showed up by surprise, brought like a pig and a half and beer and soda, and invited himself to Christmas uh, Eve dinner. So I I begin with all that. And then the invasion happens. And we all know, of course, about the, you know, the failure of the invasion. And, and I, and, and I, you know, I've worked through many, many state, uh, state departments, CIA, uh, executive branch governments, trying to figure out how the American failure um, unfolded. But by beginning um, in the swamp, with Cuban geography, with Cuban history, with uh, actual residents of the area, their experience going back, gener- you know, generations and centuries. But even in the first two years of revolution. I remind the reader or I emphasize to the reader that any discussion of the US failure uh, at the Bay of Pigs has to encompass all that, right? No landing, no invasion ever occurs on a blank slate, or in this case, more literally an empty beach, right? History cannot be willed away. And so so that's what I try to do uh, with the opening of, of that chapter and really with the whole book, right? That you can't think about you know Cuba US policy or the uh the Cuban revolution or the Cuban um or or the future of the, the Cuban government or the Cuban people without you know by willing away um history so we have to confront it and, and reckon with it. Now if it's true that um the that American military planners um in um you know, during the Bay of Pigs could not will away history. It's also true that Cubans can't will away history either. So I wanna shift gears a little in this final part of the presentation and address the question of how I see the book addressing not just um, Cuban readers, I'm sorry, American readers, but also Cuban readers, Cuban American readers and international readers from, from other parts of the world. How might, how, how might the book uh, speak to them? And so in terms of Cuban readers, I was really clear that I wanted to provide a new kind of synthesis, right? A new synth, you know, that it's a history of Cuba over more than five centuries, you know, so there will be the kinds of epic sweeping episodes and uh, stories, there will be uh, larger than life figures like Columbus or Castro or Mati or Maceo and so on, right? But I, but I was clear that I wanted them to appear that if they were going to appear, and I knew they had to, that they would appear alongside people whose names um, we often do not know, right? So the people whose, whose lives were buffeted uh, by big H history, but that are not often uh, included in, uh, in big H history. So these might be like uh, the enslaved men and women, right? Who, who had to walk barefoot through those same uh, coral reefs that, that the American invaders. Uh, had to navigate. It might include um, enslaved men and women, you know, who in their, in their quarters at night, um, on a plantation owned by a U.S. senator, um, had to use the light of glowworms as candles, okay? It might include people launching a raft from the malecon in the 1990s, or going there to see off others, even when I can't know what those people were thinking, uh, much less feeling, I I knew that in this synthesis, I wanted to place them in the narrative to make sure that readers knew that this is their history too, right? That it is a, a narrative history in which ordinary people might recognize themselves and might recognize each other. So I, you know, as my editor was talking about epic history, I kept coming back to the idea of epic history on a on a human scale. Okay, uh, and I think that that scale does something else too. I think I hope that it helps resist the urge to tell or read history from a only or mostly from a perspective of, of hindsight. Some of that, of course, is inevitable. We all know what's going to happen, right? As we're writing, we know what comes next. But I try to construct a contingent account to narrate it as much as possible in a way that forestalls the outcome, in a way that comes closer to capturing the experience of people living through history day to day. And I think that's especially important for the parts of the book that deal with the post-1952 and perhaps especially the post-1959 period. Uh, one of the things I do also in writing about the revolution is to shift the language a bit. So uh, I never use the phrase, the triumph of the revolution. This is a standard way that the revolution is spoken, that the revolution always spoke about itself. It's a standard phrase in Cuban scholarship, in Cuban journalism, in, Q- in everyday life. You even see it sometimes among exile writers who were formed uh, within uh, within Cuba and left afterwards. But um, I never use it because, for me, to say that the revolution triumphed in 1959 assumes that the revolution was already fully formed, a singular entity already defined, and it igno- ignores all the deep-seated conflicts that unfolded after Batista fled. Uh, right, all the all the conflicts to give it meaning and to determine its character. So. Um, We all know that what the revolution became was not what it was uh, in January 1959, so throughout I try to restore that sense of uncertainty, disrupting the frames that assume that we can speak of 62 years of anything. For the government in Havana, it's 62 years of revolution, of struggle, of resistance. For the government's opponents, it's 62 years of dictatorship. I think both perspectives are profoundly ahistorical. They ignore the fact that time never stands still, that Cuba in 1959 is not the same thing as in 1976 or 80 or 1994, much less uh, 2021. So in the end, by writing this history as history, right, human, contingent, sometimes surprising, sometimes heartbreaking. I think that what I'm really, or what I'm trying to do, right, in the only way that I know how to do it, is to imagine a future that, that might be built on, on a foundation of, of mutual recognition. So I think if the book invites American readers to see their own country, the U.S., from the eyes of another, I think it urges Cuban readers to see their own past through the eyes of each other, right? And so that's what I tried to do. Since, um, so I was going to end there, but then I thought, since, since, or maybe we can raise this for questions. I'll, I shall just end there because I see Gads Gat's face. So I will end there. I've been talking.
0: For, <laughs> no, no, talking I only. I think you minutes. should tell your your final story. No, I only, that's okay. Uh, no, you were no, no all it, all that. Anyway, that was. There. That, there'll be, I hope, an opportunity for you to do so. Anyway, that was really interesting and really interesting also from a kind of. From really an historian's perspective, which I think is particularly interesting. I mean, I particularly like they're all all of it. I like, but the you know the Bay of Pigs and the history of the beach. That's just great. Yeah. Um, So there are there are tons of questions I have. I assume others will. I will just uh, ask a question, which I suspect I suspect I a lot of questions would arise out of the revolution, out of your discussion of that, which is a lot to, to think about but a little kind of anecdotal point one which i certainly hadn't heard about is the story that you started off with sort of at the earlier part of rufus king
1: yeah
0: and uh, there he is as you describe him and i wondered if that if you th- you saw that as a sort of anecdotal or accidental or indeed uh, does it have a wider significance that there he is uh trying to solve his health problem but yeah. Raising larger issues.
1: Yeah. So um, there was a debate on Twitter today about the virtues and and uh, perils of beginning of, of, of using anecdotes to begin history books or proposals or chapters. So um, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule either way. So I started with that with that story because to me, for, for one thing, it's completely surprising and unexpected. When mm-hmm. I read it, um, uh, I just did a double take. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. You know, I had to reread, wait, the vice president took his oath of office on a Cuban sugar plantation, wait, the U.S. vice president, and you had to reread. And then of course I went down the rabbit hole finding everything I could about him and the plantation and who was there and the the witness accounts, et cetera. So one, one is that, that it's, that, you know, it's, so i liked it for that reason but also it just was so it's not just an anecdote for the sake of an anecdote as, as your question suggests it's it, it's the perfect way to illustrate and embody you know and and like make tangible and concrete and material these the the connections between uh, the u the us system of slavery and the cuban system of slavery you know william rufus king was not only vice president he was also, you know, an Alabama slaveholder and planter. He was deeply familiar with the institution of slavery. For him, like you know, sugar may have been a new crop to him, but the idea of, 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 of being in a, on a modern plantation certainly wasn't. The idea of being surrounded by uh, enslaved people certainly wasn't. Uh, so that's one way, right that it, it, it stresses the, the the parallels and the similarities there. The other thing is that, um, you know, that the, the tick he won on a ticket was Franklin Pierce, p- part of which uh, part of the platform was specifically acquiring Cuba and annexing it to the US. So, one of the mottos for the campaign was Pierce in Cuba. And there were people at that inauguration carrying that sign, Pierce in Cuba. So, in some ways, if you, th- you know, one way I like to think about him taking the, the oath of office on, you know, on this plantation in Matanza is that in some ways he was marking Cuban. He was marking Cuba as imminent American territory, you know? And that's, I think, how how many people, I mean, he was there supposedly to get better. He didn't, but, but I think that's also another aspect of his presence there. And so it's, you know, it brings in, it, it brings in the history of Cuban slavery, U.S. slavery. It ties together the history of both those slaveries with the history of U.S. empire and U.S. expansionism. So it's not just like an accidental cute anecdote. It's this like, you know, it's like the perfect, it's the, it's the perfect illustration of something. And I feel like sometimes, um, yeah, sometimes illustrations, illustrations can clarify things as much as explication can sometimes. So, yeah. Interesting,
0: very good. Here's a, a question uh, in the chat from, from Leah who says, would you consider Cuba's political history as exceptional in comparison to other revolutions in the Caribbean what are your opinions on the disappointments of the promises, Uh, that's a big question. What are your opinions on the disappointments of the promises of the revolution in terms of eliminating racial inequality? Mm -hmm. We only have have a couple of hours, it's not a problem.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, that's a, so, you know, I feel like the history of the Caribbean is full, is, 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 you know, You know, the history of the, and this is a center, this is a, this is a Caribbean history seminar, right, or a Caribbean studies seminar, I feel like so many of us who who do Caribbean studies and Caribbean histories are used to, you know, and, our, and our, we're, you know, we're, we're formed and we're part of these debates about what made the Caribbean the Caribbean and what makes the Caribbean an area of study, uh, you know, a coherent field of study, the history of the plantation, the history of colonialism. So we look for all these things that that unite these different Caribbean societies. At the same time, w- with all that unity there and all that coherence there, there's all these exceptional stories, right? So, so the Haitian revolution is exceptional right there. Um, so I think if we were to ask the question as you know, this as Leah does about whether, uh, you know, the Cuban revolution is, ex- is exceptional. Uh, I think the one I think it really bears comparing it to, to the Haitian revolution, right in the in the same way that that CLR James kind of pointed to in his append 63 appendix to the black jacobins right i think that there are a lot of parallels between those two revolutions that were uh so far apart so in terms of um how radically they they transformed uh societies even as there were some continuities obviously there always are but um it um so that that's one in terms of how it changed the 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 um the place of of each respective island um, in the world right so there was there was a they were both ostracized by uh, powers that be in the world right so they you know the u.S tried to isolate Cuba just as you know France and the Vatican and other places tried to isolate uh, Haiti etc so so they both exerted, Enormous symbolic uh, and exemplary power way beyond their borders and way, um, you know, at, at a level and at a proportion really surprising for the size of these places, right? Uh, so they both had kind of outsized influence in that way. So, anyway, so I think that's really interesting. So, I think they're, you know, so I don't think it's, com- so basically, is it exceptional? I don't know. I mean, is it not entirely. You know. Um, and then the last question in terms of race. Um, yeah, I agree that uh, that race and racial inequality is a central issue. One of the things I, you know, and my, my work before this was, you know, in some, was my, you know, in both my, my first book and my second book questions about about slavery and and race um, and racism and anti racism were central questions. So I, I couldn't agree more with that, with that um, you know with that statement. And I forgot where I was going because I'm trying. I, I'm going to let you look at the chat,
0: yeah. Okay, fine. <laughs> I can, uh, I can so back. that's fine. That's, uh, yeah. Fine, that's yeah, fine. Yeah, fine.
1: yeah, that, yeah. That's my. Job, how right? how would I? Yeah, I mean I talk about that in the book. So there's you know about the the revolution and its relationship to. And what it did in terms of uh, of race and, and racism on the island, uh, and other people have, have worked on this a lot. So in this part of the book, I built on the work of others, including Alejandro de la Fuente, um, Devin Spence Benson, you know, m- many others, to show the way that um, that there were that there was real progress made in terms of some indicators like you know life expectancy, education, et cetera the way that, um, that underlying, uh, the, the, well, the, the way that some of the, that even with those advances, uh, that was not enough to guarantee that there would be a real program of anti-racism and, and, and real progress. And everything we've seen since the special period in the 90s really uh, reminds us of that. So, Excellent.
0: Well, Pam basically agrees with you and says, as you can see in the chat, it's a very valid topic, should be explored as a central factor in the revolution and its aftermath. think like yeah. an interesting yeah. comment. Um, Freddie says, uh, in your view, can today's Cuban government claim to be taking forward Martí's legacy? That's another big question.
1: Yeah, someone, uh, someone just sent me a photograph. There is a new uh, museum and research center that is that just opened or is about to open, I forget, in Havana, in Vedado, which is a, like a Fidel Castro center that is going to be a library and a museum. Apparently it's modern and posh and you know cost a fortune, I'm sure, to build. Uh, it's in the same building, the same area as the Chinese embassy. So there's speculation about Chinese money, which would make... Uh, which would make sense but apparently there's this portrait uh, that you know that metamorphosizes so that it's my P and then it changes and then it becomes Fidel and then it becomes my <laughs> so certainly uh, the Cuban government um, would like to um, would like to make that that claim. And Fidel Castro himself always, I mean, he didn't, he didn't make the claim in terms of himself, but he made the claim in terms of the revolution, the idea that the Cuban revolution of 1959 represented the culmination of the, of the, of the goals and aspirations of 19th century revolutionaries. I think that um, there in terms, and that, you know, there is a point where that made sense in terms of uh, questions of sovereignty and the island's relationship to the U.S., uh but in terms of I forgot the way that I forgot the way the person phrased the question but I think in terms of uh in turn you know in other areas so not speaking only about the Cuba uh U.S relationship I don't I cannot imagine a scenario in which um Martí would have subordinated uh Essential rights of people in order to stand up to the U.S. So there's a famous letter that actually was, uh, that Fidel Castro himself quotes all the time, which is um, the, you know it's a, it's what it's my piece, second to last letter where he says uh, to a, a Mexican colleague he says I worry that uh, that that the U.S. that Cuba sorry in achieving its independence will create the space for the U.S. to fall upon Cuba, and then by extension, all of Latin America. So he worried that Cuban independence uh, might set the stage for American expansionism, might be worried about that. That that came to pass. But that worry about U.S. empire would have never led Martí not to advocate for Cuban independence. So I think there's a parallel there that I'm not, that I'm a little too tired to flesh out. But that, that that my sense is that if, if Martí valued Cuban sovereignty, he also valued uh, the you know the rights um, the rights of people to equality to to justice to um, to you know different kinds of individual freedoms as well. So yeah, so I don't think yeah
0: I'll just that's, that's good that's great. Uh, I'm sure our mutual friend Manuel Manuel Garcia asks, uh, "How do you think the book will be received in Cuba?"
1: You know, I don't know. I have no i, I have no idea. Um, I mean, I'm hearing from some people reading it in Cuba, and they seem to be enjoying it. But they all wrote before they got to the part on the Cuban Revolution, so I don't, <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't heard from them since. So, um, so I'm not sure. But I think that. Actually, you know, I think I think it'll be, they're not going to agree with everything. I, don't, I think that's impossible. But I think that, um, I'm just hoping that people can realize that the book comes from a very uh, respectful, human place. I'm trying to write history. I'm not trying to write... Um, Politics. I'm not trying to write uh, a justification for 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 anyone. Um, I'm trying to write a history that takes Cuban people seriously and puts them at the center of the story, even as the U.S. is playing an enormous role here as well. So, uh, yeah. So I end the. I end the chapter. I end the book with a the epilogue is called If Monuments Could Speak. And it focuses on uh, a black sculptor. Um, with, I'm just like blanking out of Blanco. Blanco. Blanco is a second last name. And I'm just like blanking out his name. Because I've been doing I've been doing Zoom interviews for a search like nonstop. So I'm a little bit like zoomed out, but um, anyway.
0: You want to go on to the next question? That's fine. Yeah,
1: anyway, and what and part of what I do is try to imagine history like told from the perspective of the people who walk under those monuments all, all the time, right? And and that's what I try to do. So I don't know. That's fine. I lost my train of thought there.
0: That's uh, that's fine. Yeah. You forget you're forgiven, it's not so I problem. don't know.
1: So I mean Manuel, I'd be curious to think what if I can ask a question a brief oh. question back. What how do you think it'll be received in <laughs>
0: yeah, there you go. Well that well answer, but in the meantime, while he's thinking about yeah. it. Uh, You may not have
1: read it yet either, so it's not fair yet.
0: Okay. Well, here's a question. Uh, Let's see. It's Jesus, isn't it? Uh, With regard to the quote-unquote exemplary power of the United States in Cuba, can you attempt to put a date when that started? We see that clearly in the 1830s, 1840s, but can you see that happening during an earlier period?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's... um... I mean, definitely in the during the the period of the of the Monroe Doctrine, the question of the U.S. and its relationship to Cuba and its power in Cuba is already. Uh, is already really clear. The fact that um, Spain, in the context of Latin American independence, right, when as more and more Latin American countries are becoming independent, and Spain is eager to keep Cuba, uh, both, to, both to keep Cuba because it's by then becoming the world's largest producer of sugar, but also because it's a, a useful st- uh, staging ground uh, for military uh, expeditions against uh, Latin America, etc. Spain is eager to keep Cuba so what it does is it allow, it allows free trade be, between Cuba and North America in 1817 and that's a, that's an that's a really important move that's going to shape uh the character and the aspirations of the Cuban elite for a long time so definitely by the early ni- early 19th century you can see that you can see it going back i mean you know Thomas Jefferson is talking about acquiring Cuba and attaching it to the U.S. And in one way or another, he doesn't specify whether a state or territory or what have you. But, you know, in the 17th, in the late 1780s. So, um, yeah, so it goes back. It goes back um, further.
0: Great. So Max has is halfway through your book. He really likes the anecdotes uh, you've used. It's a long statement. Uh, and... Uh, he gives examples of them, stories of Rene Mendez-Capote, The Three Wands. And he says, he asks, what challenges What challenges did you encounter when trying to piece together these narratives? What are the other methodological challenges you've encountered while writing, quote-unquote, a people's history?
1: Yeah. Um, you know... I didn't like. I didn't figure it all out ahead of time. I just figured it out as I was writing, and I didn't know what what the stories and what the examples will be. I mean, in some cases, I knew ahead of time, but you know, but um, but I didn't know until I was deep in the research and coming across these things, and and I allowed myself to be surprised. So he refers to uh, the René Mendez Capote, you know. Uh, a young, uh, uh, a, who went on to become a, a Cuban writer, but she grew up in and, You know, she was born um, in 1900 or 1901, and yeah, and just just told the perspective of being. You know, the, the, she, she has a memoir. She has several that that I use for this, but one that was like "Memoria de una cubanita que nació con el siglo," so the memory of a young Cuban girl born with the century. So the idea of, of talking about Cuba um emerging from spanish colonialism and starting its career as a as a republic and to tell that story from the perspective of a young girl you know that that's it, it just appealed to me and then the fact that which i was completely shocked by when i when i read it I, it's another one where you do a double take that the that the that the the, the builder the master builder who built her house in Bedalo was actually a black veteran who then became uh, one of the two leaders of the the so you know of the of the Independent Party of Color and the rebellion that came to be known as the Race War of 1912. So you know mm-hmm. it, it was just another one of those stories where it, it just let things come together in a way that was really exemplary and and surprising and and I hoped you know ap- appealing and and, and and yeah that would welcome or entice readers in.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, Daniel says uh, that, um, uh, of course, your book covers 500 years or so of Cuban history. Did you consider, he asked, going further back than that? Or indeed, do you do so in some smaller ways?
1: I do so in smaller ways. I feel like, you know, there's all these things I left out of the uh, that that are not in the book or that that are not in the book to the extent that I would want in some ideal world. But um, you know, I recently went back to the proposal I submitted to the publisher in which I kept referring to the book as short <laughs> and then it became whatever, 576 pages. So there, there's a lot that's not in it. I, I, I went back and forth between starting it before Columbus uh, or starting at a Columbus. The, the reason I decided <laughs> to start it with Columbus and then go back was for the reasons that I clarified, that I, that, that I touched on when I talked about that chapter that by starting with Columbus and drawing the comparison to the way U.S. history is narrated, I bring in the question of U.S. empire and the relationship between the two countries in a a way that I think surprises American readers. So I decided to go with that. But then what I did is in that chapter itself, as I talk about the Spanish, um, you know, in Cuba, then I went back to uh, indigenous culture and society and tried to, you know, do more with it in that you know, later in that
0: chapter, but I could have done more. So Manuel says he will talk to you later, but I mentioned that because Paul has built on that question to ask, "How do you think your book will be received by Cuban Americans in Florida?" Uh, I mean, he says I'm interested in any parallels between Cuban, between how Cuban Americans see discourse on Cuba, with that of right-of-center American Jews' view of discourse on Israel. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, you know, I feel like on the one hand, I think Cuban Americans, um, I think, and and right now it's only available in English, so I'm hearing from people who are reading it in English and can read in English, right? So, but I feel like many of them are starved for this kind of history, you know, they're depending on when they left Cuba, they, 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 they don't. You know, they, they have the, all these ideas of Cuba that they hear from their family or from relatives, but they don't really know that history. And so I feel like they're yeah. starved for it. And they're and so I'm hearing from a lot of people who are just saying they learned a lot, that they really enjoyed it, that they never knew. I'm also there's I'm hearing from people who um, don't agree with you know who who I think are more to the right of me uh, politically, but. Um, and more to the left, but those aren't tend to not be Cuban Americans, but whatever. More to the more to the right of me, and what they do is they they really appreciate what's in the book, and then a lot of them, and I'm saving them actually. I've created an email folder for them. A lot of them are sending me personal family stories, uh, in a in a way um, that I mean I think seek to to bring me more to the right. And, but right now I'm just saving the stories. They're amazing family stories that I'm now developing a, a collection of. But, but, so they're, they're starving for knowing the history and they're also kind of eager to tell their own
0: history. Mm. Yeah. But, uh, next book, um, anyway, Magdalena says, do you think the nah, Cuban right. revolution could have survived without the restrictions on contact imposed by both countries?
1: Um, You know, it's a counterfactual question, right? So there's no way to answer. There's, I mean, there's several ways one can answer. One is to question what, what the Cuban revolution means in that sentence, because to say, could the revolution, could the Cuban revolution have survived is to assume that it did survive, right and and part of what I try to do in the book is maybe trouble that a little but not to not to have like a clear ending point of the Cuban revolution, but to emphasize uh, how it changed over time. I mean, it, it's it, to me it's not you know it's not at all the, the government that's in Cuba today is a government that came out of the Cuban Revolution, but I would not call it um, a revolutionary government. so that's that's one thing to to clarify. Another thing is, I do, I mean, I do think as the question I think suggests that American hostility uh, gave, gave Cuba a lot of, and gave the Cuban revolution a lot of prestige and a lot of credibility in the world. And 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 they used that, and, and the Cuban government used that to good to effect. There's also the question of the Cold War and the Soviet Union, right, that um, the Cuban Revolution survived because it could, tur- at that point, because it could turn to the Soviet Union in the face of, of U.S. hostility. But I feel like U.S. hostility just, for the most part, played right into the hands of the Cuban government. And there's a really famous anecdote um, story about Che Guevara being in a party, a birthday party in Uruguay for a Brazilian diplomat. And he has a secret meeting at 2 a.m. with um, Richard Goodwin, one of Kennedy's advisors. This was a few months after the Bay of Pigs. And basically Che Guevara thanks Richard Goodwin for the Bay of Pigs. And says before this we were in a grieved little country now we're an equal thank you so much we've consolidated you know you've helped us consolidate our power and richard goodwin could think of could think of nothing to say and just said you're welcome
0: you know? <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah. how, interesting. how interesting yeah um kate says kate quinn says uh she loves the that you deconstruct the ubiquitous ubiquitous What's happening here? You're, she's talking about the phrase, yeah, the triumph of yeah. revolution, uh, that we so often read without thinking about it. Yeah. Um, Have you managed to trace how quickly, she says, that phrase came into common usage in yeah. Cuba, uh, you know, within days, weeks, months? It definitely, definitely, she says, says something about the ways in which complex histories can get frozen into yeah. a singular narrative. Right.
1: yeah was there wait are you frozen the question was (laughs) uh, have
0: you managed to trace how quickly that phrase came into common usage in Cuba Uh,
1: it's a a great question that would make a great paper for a student to do or for mean, for for any of us to do right but I haven't I haven't done it but it's a um it's a great and I actually did I mean I said that here uh, and talking to you, I didn't end up in I, I, that was going to be in the book at one point, and then it, I forgot to include it at the end. So, uh, so I didn't actually talk about um, talk about that that in the book. the 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 phrase.
0: Okay. And Horace says, "I know you're looking back five centuries, but I'm fascinated by your observation." Quote: "History is up for grabs." To put this all as briefly as possible. Though, can you imagine that in the middle of a rare, rare global pandemic in which, despite and perhaps because of its isolation, Cuba is, proved, Cuba is proving self sufficient in vaccines, the history may be more dynamic than ever?
1: <clears throat> yeah, I mean, um, yeah, the, the vaccine story is incredible. There's, there's, um, and really important and um, and, and important to, to emphasize. Um, and that's, you know, I try to keep things like that in, in play in the book. So, in, when, you know, when I'm talking in the end, I wanna come back to the histories of the graphs thing, but in the end, when, I, when, I am, when I'm talking about the, those monuments and the um, Teodoro Ramos Blanco, his name just came to me. Okay, when, I, when I'm talking about the sculptors, monuments, he does monuments to heroes like Maceo and Martí and, and, and so on, but he does these sculptures that are of anonymous people and and he himself is black and many of the of the, of the figures the anonymous figures he writes about are also black so they're you know they'll be like a the, there's one sculpture in the Museo de Bellas Art, Nacional de Bellas Artes in Havana that's called Vida Interior Interior life, and it's the head in white marble of a black woman, and so I I talk in the book about that about that sculpture and imagining who that might be, right? And and it could be a Cuban doctor going off to you know to Africa to treat Ebola. I didn't go to that yet you know, to the vaccines, but it could be someone, a woman pondering getting on a raft the next day, right? They're both part of the story. They're both products of the Cuban Revolution in some sense, uh, and I think no there cannot be a history of the cuban revolution that doesn't keep both those women in in the narrative so i just want to say that and in terms of history is up for grabs i feel like right like history in a sense is always up for grabs but i feel it i mean those of us who live in the us and are watching what's going on with the 1619 project with new debates about reconstruction now right that 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 history is mattering in public debate in in a way that that you know, I mean, it, it, I think it ebbs and flows, and we're at a point now where it really, really matters, I think, because the present feels so uncertain. And I think um, for, for Cuba, there's the potential for that to happen as well, in part because, and I see it when people are talking about the the, the protests, um, and even actually, some, you know, and they're talking about 62 years of this and 62 years of that. In some sense, what they're doing is they're re-narrating the origin of the Cuban Revolution, and that to some feels like an important project right now. And um, this, in the same way, there's also debate about what you know, because the present is so uncertain and so politically polarized right now. There's also a debate about what the Cuban Republic was. Uh, and you know, so so I do think that that history does feel up for grabs right now in a way that uh, feels unusual to me.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're we're slowly winding down. We've put you through uh, your paces, but I did I did want to ask something before we finish, um, which when uh, the story of the Cuban missile your story of the Cuban missile crisis in that particular village, uh, and the accounts of those people and those palm trees that they saw, which, was, yeah. which were, of course, not palm trees. So that's that's a terrific uh, anecdote, anecdote, if you want to call it that, a particular story, but very important. And the question is, is there any way to know how they subsequently felt about all this when the whole thing came out and what was really going on? Uh, we probably don't have that kind of evidence, or perhaps we no. do. No. no.
1: I mean, that we might, I don't know. I mean, I got yeah. that work from, um, there's a, a team in um, oh god, where are they? Um, in Denmark or Norway? Norway. Uh, it's a joint, I think, uh, Norwegian and Cuban team that does all this. His, you know, they do archaeological research on the on recent history, and so they've done all this archaeological work. On the missiles, on the Cuban missile sites, on the Uh Soviet missile sites in Cuba, really fascinating work, and they've done interviews with residents in the town. So I relied on that work, and of course cited that work uh, in the chapters. So um, no, I found a few letters, um, you know, in in other places where people talked about how quickly, you know, those 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 young soldiers disappeared. But but no, it would be uh, an important thing to to research. Great. Interesting thing to research,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think the, the there was also a comment, a very positive comment about the talk, and I I have to say that I share it. I think uh, you've you've explored the topic, but also um, I think you uh, made your book come very much alive, and um, and the questions I think uh, really reflect that. So I think um, I think uh, of course it's published in the states, but I, I I'm sure it will be available here and. Uh somebody else, somebody said, oh, wait a minute, there's an, I was about to close it, but there's another question, which I guess we should at least uh, try to ask you to deal with. Let's see, from, from Lishar, could you speak a bit more about the custom you mentioned of the indigenous people of the Bay burying their dead with their feet towards the east? Yeah, I shelf? mean, that's
1: all I know. It's something that came up in passing in an old, old history of Cuba from like the 1920s. Yeah. And... Yeah.
0: You know the, the prison, sorry, please. Yeah,
1: so so I don't have much, I don't have anything
0: beyond that. Uh, well, uh, Lichard goes on yeah. to talk about right, uh, be, yeah, you know, as a kind of uh, notion in Judaism yeah. and conversos. And you, you, obviously, this is not something that, um, you, she's it's a good question, but it's not something you ha- have explored further, yeah, yeah. so yeah. So anyway, I, I think that with that point, I think that that um, it's, it's of course great to see you. Good and to see even you. Even and thank you I, all
1: for thank you all for coming. Hi, uh, yeah. Gene. I mean, I'm sorry
0: that we haven't seen you recently at the ACH because we can't go to the ACH. Yeah, so yeah I know so that, exactly. So that 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 is at some
1: at some point. I don't even know when or where the next one is. If I do
0: know. I one. do know uh, because it's in Jamaica. and I plan to go, yeah. but it's but it's online. Oh. Uh, which is, uh, if you ask my opinion, it's a bit early to go online, but as of the yeah. last week, maybe that's the right call. Um, yeah. But there are thanks from various people in, in, in the chat. There's certainly thanks from me uh, and and, and, for, and for the organizers. I think this is really great. And you've done a very good job of, uh, you know, of exploring your book. And I think people will be really interested in getting a hold of it and reading it for great. all kinds, all the reasons you said. So great. Uh, Yes. really really well done and uh, i hope that we'll on a personal level' we'll get to see you sometime soon um but thanks very much for this evening that's that's London I
1: mean, anyway so. yeah <laughs> London, of course
0: of course when it's possible to travel <laughs> Wherever, yeah whatever. a round of applause <laughs> anyway thank yeah. you
1: thank you all
0: yeah so Bye-bye. so we'll be, yeah i'm sure we'll be in touch with ada Great, we'll be in touch with bye bye bye